him in this way. Lord Jesus, it's been said a number of different ways already through songs to uh, sharing time, uh, just how in need of you we are. Uh, Lord, just how in need of you we are this morning, that you would move in our midst, that we would hear from you, that we would be more like you. Uh, Lord, to the day-to-day situations on everything that happens between Sundays, uh, that you would continue to move, that you would use us in powerful ways, that uh, your ways would become our ways. Uh, So Lord, we just invite you into this place now. Uh, We've sang it, we've prayed it, we do it again. Would you come and make yourself known? And Lord Jesus, as always, may I decrease and you increase this morning. May your people hear your word directly from your lips, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come, this is our last week uh, in the book of Mark. Um, And so as we come to Mark chapter 16, we're going to start. I'm going to read the entire chapter to you. It's 20 verses. It's not that long. Uh, But I'm going to ask you to just uh, join with me. It'll be on the the wall behind me to follow along because uh, I want to deal with the end of the chapter and then come back to the beginning. And the best way I know how is just to read the whole thing. So start with me here. Uh, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they could go and anoint him, him being Jesus who is in the tomb. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in long white robe sitting on the right side. They were amazed and alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He is not here. See the place where they put him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So they went out and started running from the tomb because the trembling and astonishment had overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Early on the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him, And as they were mourning and weeping, yet when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. Then after this, he appeared in a different form to two of them walking on their way in the country. And they went and reported it to the rest who did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the 11 themselves. And as they were reclining at the table, he rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of their heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had been resurrected. Then he said to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will never harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. Then after speaking to them, the Lord was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the accompanying signs. Okay, so that's the whole chapter. I just want to really focus on verse 9 through 20. In your, uh, in your Bible, as you read it, you may see that it's in brackets. Uh, as, as it's up here today, you see those brackets at the end? 
nine through 20s in brackets, or your version may have something at the top, kind of a little header uh, that says something like this. In the NIV, it says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, nine to 20. So before we get into where we're going today, I want to deal with this. I've had a number of people who have been reading ahead, who obviously we've been in Mark for a while. It's not hard to figure out where we're going to be next week or two weeks from now. Uh, and people have come up and gone, what are you going to do with the end of Mark? Because this whole thing in brackets, basically it's, it's untrustworthy. And that's a hard thing to say because it's in the Bible, right? But here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. It tells on itself. There are different places where you'll read through and you'll see something in brackets. So there'll be a footnote and it'll say something to the effect of early manuscripts don't have this. Or so it's letting you know this piece here isn't reliable. Uh, basically, it goes like this. We've been collecting hundreds and thousands of ancient documents, all different versions of, of the Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. And they're able to look at it and go, boy, this piece it wasn't here in the early stuff. And then there came a point when it just showed up and kind of got copied down after that. And if it's not there in the early texts, it leads them to question, did this get added? Sometimes it's a, a simple mistaken, an E looks like an O in the Greek. And it just got copied wrong. And hey, wait, this is a different word. So we got to be careful with this one. Sometimes like this, this is kind of the, the biggest example of a big chunk of text that they want you to know, be very careful with this one. It wasn't there in the earliest manuscripts. At some point in time, it seems like it was added. And so the Bible tells on itself and it says, hey, be very careful with these. What most uh, scholars today believe happened is that essentially somebody, uh, it was their job a scribe to write down the book, to look at the copy of Mark and to create another copy. They didn't have printers, Xerox machines, anything like that. It was all done by hand. Take this text and copy it out to look exactly like it. And what they think happened is somebody got to the end of uh, verse eight where it says this, so they went out and they started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. And somebody said, that's not a very fulfilling ending. Mark, Peter, what are you doing? You can't just leave the story there. And so some probably well-meaning soul said, I'll wrap things up for him. And so basically, I'll take a lot of the book of Acts and just pencil it in here real quick to give it a more fulfilling ending, to make it seem like it wasn't just so abrupt. People need more Mark and Peter. And so this person the assumption is, said, I'll help them out, and added all of these different things here. What happened in the story after that? Because let's be honest, it's not a very fulfilling ending to go, man, the, the women got to the tomb, and the angel spoke, and they were terrified. The end. It's not. None of the other gospel writers do that. I'll tell you what, though, it kind of feels like Peter. From everything we've learned of Peter, it kind of feels like the old Forrest Gump thing, and that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, and the women saw it, and the tomb was empty, and they were terrified. Anywho, we don't know if that's exactly what happened, if it was some scribe who kind of like was trying to help Peter and Mark out. What we do know is that this is not a reliable piece of scripture. And the, again, the thing that I love about the Bible is that the, the, the writers of the New Testament, not just the writers, excuse me, the people that are translating it, they're not trying to sneak anything by us. 
They're not trying to go, oh no, what if somebody sees that they can't rely on this word and what if they then start doubting everything? They go, hey, we want people to know that the word of God is so reliable, we'll let you know when we, the experts, have any kind of questions because we believe the rest of it is that reliable. And so they tell on themselves. And so again, as somebody asked me, what are you gonna do when you get to verse nine through 20? And I told them, nothing. I'm not gonna deal with it. What do I do in my own personal life when I get to the end of Mark? I stop at verse eight. Because if it's not reliable, I don't need to mess with it. Because here's the thing, even if we cut that whole part off, which actually new translations are doing, in a lot of the newer translations that are coming out, Mark stops at chapter 16, verse eight. They're just saying, it's not worth it. We don't need it. And what do we lose if we cut off verse nine through 20? Nothing. Because, I mean, look at some of the things that it talks about. He spoke to Mary Magdalene, um, who was mourning and weeping, and said he was still alive, and he, he sent her back to the disciples. We have that in Luke's gospel. We have that in Matthew's gospel. We have that in John's gospel. After this, he appeared to two men walking on the country, and he looked different, and they didn't know who he was, and we have that in Luke's gospel. Actually, probably where some of these accounts came from. The guy went, hey, Luke said it better and wrote it in there. We already have that. Then he appeared to the 11. We have that in Matthew, Luke, and John. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. We have that in Matthew. We have that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Here's the one thing that we lose if we cut this out. If we just don't even read it, if it's not even in our Bibles. You ready for this? Snake handling. You know the joke about snake handling churches? For some of you, it may not be a joke. You may have gone to these churches. The one and only place it's found. They will be able to pick up snakes. Should they drink anything deadly, it will never harm them. There's nowhere, nothing like that anywhere else in all of Scripture. There's nothing else that promises that, hey, as long as you have enough faith, the snake won't bite you, or even if it does, you won't die. The closest thing is in the book of Acts. We have Paul, who is picking up some brush, and a viper came and bit him. And it says, he shook the viper into the fire, kept going, and everyone was sitting, watching, waiting. When's it going to hit? Like, when is he going to start bloating up and all of the gross stuff that would happen? And nothing happens, and they're amazed, and they give glory to God. That one account of happening to that one guy, pretty much it. That's what we got. But some people have created an entire thing off of this really questionable passage that says, if you're in the kingdom of God, if you have enough faith, we're going to throw some snakes at you, but don't worry, they won't bite you. And if they do, I guess you didn't have faith, you're out. Which actually goes horribly against most of the things that we find in Scripture. So what do we lose by coming up against some of these questionable things? Sometimes it's a, a chunk like this. Sometimes it's a single verse. Nothing. There's not a single one that isn't then repeated in another book where we go, oh no, we're going to lose that doctrine. We're going to lose that theology. Well, again, if we lose snake handling, I think we'll be okay. But the rest of it, it's all repeated somewhere else. There's more reliable sources to go and kind of build our faith on. And so what do I do with chapter 9 through chapter 20? I move on. I, I hold it very open-handedly. I'm familiar with what it says. I've read it before. We just read it now. But I hold it very open-handedly. And I go, let's go to the more reliable places. The, the places that every document we've ever found, it, that's what it says. And that's where I'm going to put my faith. Does that make sense?
So if you've ever come across those, or, and you'll find them, like I said, sometimes it's a word, sometimes it's like the second half of a verse, you know, it just kind of adds something onto the end of it, and it'll be in brackets, or it'll have a little footnote that says, hey, this wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. Just hold it super open-handed. Don't build your theology, don't build your faith on those. There's enough that's incredibly clear in the scriptures. I don't need to stand on some of the shaky ground. Does that make sense? So uh, if you have some questions about some of those, because again, there's a few of them kind of throughout the New Testament. I'd love to talk with you about them. Um, I'm not scared to to talk about those things. And so if you have some questions about that, please, let's talk about them at some point. But one other thing that I wanted to make clear uh, here toward the end, we looked at like at verse eight, the ending of um, what we actually believe Mark wrote. And it says, so they went out and started running from the tomb uh, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Did they really say nothing to anyone? Where did they go? Where did the angel tell them to go? To go to the disciples and to tell them, hey, the tomb is empty. And actually, he tells them here, he's going to meet you over in Gethsemane, or not in Gethsemane, excuse me, in Galilee. Did they not go? Like, is, is Mark and, or Peter wrong? What it basically means is they didn't go screaming it through the streets. They didn't go yelling, telling everyone they met, he's risen, he's risen, he's risen. They were astonished. They were trembling. They didn't go tell it through the streets. But we find, again, over in Luke's account, they did what they were told. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only linen cloths. So he went home and was amazed at the happenings. Even though it looks at the end of Mark like they just kind of stood there, astonished, and didn't do the thing they were told to do, they did. They they listened to the Lord. But let's start back up in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? So let's start all the way back. This is now Sunday morning in their world. Like as soon as it became Sunday morning, they were waiting on the sunrise, basically, so that they could go to the tomb where Jesus was buried and that they could anoint his body. They could, they could use the proper spices and wraps and linen cloths and all of these things to give Jesus a proper burial. They had just been through the longest weekend of their life. Once the, uh, once the stone was rolled into place at the end of Friday, a kind of a clock was set. The Sabbath was the following day, and on the Sabbath, you can't touch dead people. There are certain rules if you want to enjoy the Sabbath, especially the Passover, which was like their, their crown jewel of their religious feast. One of, the, one of the main things you can't do is touch dead people. You'll be unclean and not allowed to participate in anything. So they basically had to sit and wait all weekend. And now comes Sunday morning, and you can kind of see the urgency. They're like racing to the tomb, even to the point where they didn't even think about the stone. As they've already bought the spices and they're heading there, they go, oh no, who's going to roll away the stone? There is this massive stone that was rolled into place. We didn't even think about it. We've been so flustered. We've been in such kind of a hurry. 
We didn't even think about it. They were going to prepare Jesus' body for a proper burial. This was devotion to their dead friend. They were not expecting resurrection. It is very clear from the text. They weren't going, hey, let's, let's head over to the tomb and see if he's risen yet. They were going, let's head to the tomb so we can bury him properly because he's dead. It was setting in on them. He's not coming back. Let's go show him proper respect and love because he's dead. They had been told about resurrection numerous times. These women weren't strangers to Jesus. It's not like they just heard about him that weekend. They had been with Jesus for a long time. They traveled with him. They had heard his teachings. Just a few verses earlier in Mark chapter 15, speaking of these women at Jesus' death, it said there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they would follow him and help him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. They had been with Jesus. Some of them throughout Jesus' entire ministry, they were actually kind of bankrolling. They were paying for and supporting Jesus in the ministry that he was doing. They heard the teachings. They would have been there when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again in three days. They would have heard all of this, just like the disciples, yet they were going to prepare his body for death. Picking up in verse 4, looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. They were amazed and alarmed. Why were they alarmed? Think of the scene. They come here thinking, how are we going to move the stone? The stone's actually gone, and there's a guy that ain't Jesus sitting in there, long white robes, and they're amazed and alarmed. Why are they alarmed? Why are they amazed? Because it's empty. Certainly, again, we found they weren't expecting that. So part of it is, oh no, it's empty. There's this random guy next to the tomb that they don't know. Who's this rando? Like, yeah. We came looking for Jesus' body, and this guy is sitting here. Their first thought wasn't, oh good, it happened, he's risen. Their first thought was, this guy took him. Somebody took him. Over in John's account, uh, we have these two passages. Uh, first, it says, talking about Mary, when she comes then running over uh, to the disciples to tell them what she's seen. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Let me, let me give you a little context here real quick. We're skipping ahead a little bit in the story. The angel had already spoken to her at this point and said, Jesus is risen. Don't worry. He's alive. Isn't it great? And she went, yeah, cool. Peter, they took him. We don't even know where he went. They took him. And so then in John's gospel, they share that like, everybody runs to the tomb and they're looking, where is he? It's empty. What's going on? And Jesus actually appears to Mary. He doesn't look like himself. He apparently has some cool ability after he's risen to look like whatever he wants. People don't recognize him when they see Jesus. So Jesus appears to her and he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? 
He's cheeky. Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Okay, look, you won't even get in trouble. I won't even tell anybody. Where's his body? She's standing before Jesus himself. The angel has already told her he's risen. And all she can get through his head is, no, dead people don't do that. Where is he? You guys are playing some trick on us. Where's his body? Just, tell, just whisper it in my ear. Nobody even has to know you were involved. I'll go get him. It's okay. She is alarmed and shocked, not because I've just witnessed the greatest miracle known to man, but because she can't see past a worldly understanding. The only thing that makes sense to me is somebody took him. Again, angels speak to her. Jesus himself standing before her. Where is he? What did you do with the body? Where has he gone? Don't be alarmed, he, the angel, told them. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected, amen? He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So they went out and started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Don't be alarmed. Uh, many times when angels show up to people uh, in the scriptures, what we find is the first thing they tell them is some form of fear not. It's a very common thing. There's actually a funny part that you read about or see in the play that Kim's going to put on. Uh, but this whole thing, they would always show up and people would freak out and they'd have to go, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed doesn't actually mean that. Alarmed there, if you go back to the Greek, actually means surprised. The, the, the angel is looking at her and going, why are you surprised? She's like, it's empty, where'd he go? Why would you be surprised by that? Weren't you listening? He told you this would happen. Don't be surprised by this. So instead, go and tell his disciples, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, this is still two of my favorite words in this whole book of Mark, and Peter. If, if you remember, Peter has denied Jesus three times. Peter made eye contact with him during his trial as he said, I've never met the man, and began to call down curses from heaven. And he looks at Jesus, and the betrayal sets in. And for the angel to tell her, not just, hey, go get the disciples, but also make sure Peter knows. I can't preach that message again because I'll get stuck on it because it is some of the most powerful stuff that God singles out Peter. He has to know too. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And what she's supposed to go tell them? He's going ahead of you to Galilee and you'll see him there just as he told you. The angel's going again. No one should be surprised. He told you this was going to happen. The ladies that are present, hey, you at least heard it somewhere. He was talking to his disciples and you were around. Go tell the disciples. He told them specifically, three different times at least in the book of Mark. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to raise again in three days. He's already even told them, hey, after I raise again, I'll meet you in Galilee. Why was no one looking for resurrection? Why, why was it the furthest thing from their mind? He had told them, 
multiple times. I mean, to the day, I'm going to die, count to three, I'm going to be alive. Like, it's not hard. From Friday to Sunday, that's the third day, I will be resurrected. He told them this point blank. Let's talk for a little bit. Why was no one looking for resurrection? Everyone's surprised. Again, we saw in some of the other accounts, the disciples thought the women were lying. They're not even trustworthy witnesses anyway. Like, why would we believe them? And no one buys it. Why was no one looking for resurrection? What do you think? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and think about it. At no point in time do I want to beat up on the disciples here or, or the followers of Jesus and go, come on, dummies. Death's a pretty final thing, right? Like, to them, when Jesus died, that's the end of the story. That's what happens. Dead people stay dead. They didn't have an ability to see past that. Joe? Okay. So do you think they remembered and just didn't, thought he was crazy? He said he'd raise from the dead, but like, pfft, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. De- death, again, is a final thing. There's, um, there's a certainly an amount of unbelief in there because Jesus told him point blank. So if death is final and the body's not there, the only thing we can come to is somebody took it. And it would make sense that like they're hiding it from us. They're trying to even take that from us. You know, would have been what the disciples were thinking. All they could see through was the, kind of this worldly point of view. Death is the end. And if he's not here, somebody took him. That, that was the only lens they had to view this through. Kim, were you going to say something? Well, I know his story. <laughs> Thank you for leading with that. I appreciate that. I don't know that there was a journal or they had access to paper. I mean, they, it was like this all was a thing. Like they were at the table one minute, they left. Yeah. Right. 
true. Yeah, what they were looking for Jesus to do is defeat the Romans. And Jesus kept telling them, you're looking in the wrong place. That's not what my kingdom's about. What, what they didn't get, what they didn't have the eyes to see was the enemy Jesus came to defeat was death itself. That was not even in their wildest thinking. And, and I mean, exactly what Kim said. This had been, to quote her, a thing. Quite a lot had happened over the last three days. They would have been emotional wrecks. You know what I mean? So again, I am not here to beat up on the disciples, but it's easy to do that sometimes because we read it and we go, he already told you dummies. What do you mean you didn't even, even once he's risen, you guys can't even put two and two together then. Here, here's some things that we have to understand yet. They did not yet have the Holy Spirit. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. They were doing the best they could with what they had and with what they had was broken. So it's easy for us, especially now, A, we have the rest of the story. We also, for those of us who are following Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and we go, it just makes sense. Of course he's coming to build a spiritual kingdom. Of course he's come to overcome death, because we've read Romans. They didn't have this yet. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. The only lens they had to view all this through was a natural lens. As long as I can connect the dots, I can believe it. And here's the thing, having Jesus beside you connects a whole lot of dots. He had done stuff that they were astonished at all the time, but it was easy to go, well, of course it happened. He did it, but he's dead. Who's going to raise him from the dead? He's gone. All they had was a natural way of looking at things because they didn't yet have the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus had taught them about the Holy Spirit who would be coming to them. And again, I don't think they understood it yet. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Why are we able to remember the things that Jesus taught and to apply them even in the hard times? Because his Holy Spirit has come expressly for that purpose. When we start to lose faith, when we start to lose hope, when we start to look at things through a purely natural, worldly lens, we have a Holy Spirit inside of us to go, hey, wait. That's not what we do. Don't you remember when Jesus said? Don't you remember when Jesus did? And we're able to go, oh, that's right. This isn't a worldly thing. It's a spiritual thing. Because we have received the Holy Spirit. Paul would say this to the Corinthian church. What we have received is not a spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritually taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Holy Spirit. So I never want to get too tough on the disciples. They didn't have really the only tool that makes any difference. It wasn't available to them yet. Continue to read into the book of Acts, and you'll see right into Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit comes, oh, things are different at that point. All of a sudden, these fishermen, they get it. Everything becomes different because of the Holy Spirit. We have that Holy Spirit. How many times do we default to looking at things through a natural lens? 
but if it doesn't make sense, but how could God really, but what if, but what if, instead of going, hey, if he says it, he can do it. We have a Holy Spirit to, to remind us of this, to bring the word to life in us, but how often do we simply rely on our natural senses? But what makes sense to me? The second thing, they didn't know how to have faith yet. They had not learned how to have faith, because catch this, they hadn't needed to. They didn't need faith. They had Jesus standing right beside them. They could go and try whatever craziness he told them to do, go cast out demons, whatever, because they knew that if they failed, Jesus would come up, physically stand right beside them, and fix the problem. They didn't need to have faith. They had never had to go it without Jesus physically standing right there, typically doing it for them. For the first time, he's absent. For the first time, they're on their own. They can't just go, well, of course he's going to do it. Let's just stand back and watch because he's dead. They had never yet had to use faith. The, the opposite of faith is sight. When I can see it, when it's already happened, when it's standing right in front of me, I don't need to have faith in it because it's right there. When it's removed... Now I have to have faith. When Jesus was right there beside them, it was always just watch what he's going to do. When he's gone, now do we really believe he was who he said he was? Do we really believe he could do the things he said he was going to do? Because he's not here to prove it for us right now. This is where faith had to kick in, and they had never flexed that muscle before. And so, yeah, they look kind of silly, walking around thinking Jesus is a gardener, going, just tell us where the body is when he's right in front of them. Like, it's easy to kind of joke about, but they had never had to flex these muscles before. Imagine the three days that they had just been through. When they all run away from Jesus, when he's in the garden, two of them kind of follow Peter and John, kind of follow from a bit of a distance. Peter eventually bails at some point in time, they all end up together in the same locked room. They kind of, let's go back to home base. And they all meet up back in this place. Imagine what Saturday would have been like from them. They went from death to empty tomb in a matter of hours. They went from everything is okay as long as Jesus is here to he's gone, now what? What about everything he promised? How in the world can he make any of that happen now? He's dead. Did we put our faith in the wrong guy? Did we trust the wrong guy? Was he really a crackpot like they said? And we left everything. Some of them would go, I've been following him for three and a half years. Like, did I legitimately waste years of my life right now? I can't see how things are going to turn out the way that he promised. Imagine the conversations, the questions that just would have been roiling in those three days. They were in something that I'm calling the in-between. They were in between when the promise was made and when the promise was fulfilled. And the in-between is a hard place to be. The in-between is where it takes faith. When the promise is made, it feels great. Man, wouldn't that be cool if, wouldn't that be great if? When the promise is fulfilled, oh, we celebrate and we'll come to church and we'll speak into a microphone and go, you're not gonna believe it. Here's what happened. But what about the in-between? The in-between can be dark 
The in-between is filled with questions. The in-between has a lot of doubts. And they were stuck in the in-betweens. They had gone from the mountaintop to the valley in hours. He was here with us. Then we left him. Now he's dead. From the highest of highs, truly, to the lowest of lows. We were walking with him. Now he's dead. What about everything he promised us? In those days, I think while they were sitting there, again, in this locked room, wondering, is somebody coming for us next? And what, They would have talked, and I'm sure they would have asked some questions. What about some of that stuff he promised? What about some of that stuff he said? They weren't dumb. They heard him. He repeated himself a lot. They would have at least remembered parts of it. What about that time he told us to seek first the kingdom of God and allow God to take care of everything else? it doesn't look like God's taking care of everything else right now. Did we seek the wrong kingdom? What about all those times he told us that just a little bit of faith and God would move mountains? Where is that now? They would have been staring at a pretty big mountain. Does that mean he was wrong? He made a promise, but I don't see how it's going to happen now. Maybe even somebody said, didn't he say he'd come back from the dead? I don't, I don't know how, that's crazy talk, right? I don't even know why I brought that up. I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, there would have just been doubts rolling all around. They were stuck in between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. They would see Jesus alive again. We know this. We have the rest of the story. They would see all of his promises fulfilled in this life and in the next they would see his kingdom move forward like never before. They would receive his Holy Spirit and they would display incredible faith. But us knowing that now did not help them then. They didn't know the rest of the story. It hadn't been written yet. They'd certainly never read it before. They were in the in-between and they had to wrestle with, is he really gonna do what he said he's gonna do? Is he really able to do what he said he's going to do. I've never seen anything like it before. I can't even imagine how it would happen. Can we trust him? Their faith was being tested for the first time, and it was quite a test. He's dead. Can we really trust him? So let me ask you this. Again, let's talk for a little bit. What do we do when we're in the in-between? Every one of us, if you have been following Christ for any amount of time, you have found yourself where you read a promise in the scripture and you said, I don't know how that could ever happen in my life. God promised it, maybe, and you even believed it, but you find yourself looking and going, is he really gonna? Can he even? You have been, or maybe are now, in the in-between where your faith is being tested, where you are having to ask the question, can he really be trusted? Does he really do that anymore? Is he really that good? If I can't figure out a way to make this better, could he? When we're in the valley, in between the mountaintops, it's dark and it's hard. And here's the, here's the hard part. The higher the mountaintops have been, the deeper the valley is. 
We love the mountaintops when it's easy and faith just comes naturally and man, God is so good and his praises just naturally come from us and it feels like our prayers are a direct line to him and it's all getting through and then a circumstance changes. And then the the emotions that come with the mountaintop just dry up. And sometimes without warning, we find ourselves in the valley going, what happened? Is he still the same God as he was on the mountaintop, even if it doesn't feel like it? These are the questions that we have to wrestle with. So on a very practical level, like when I say, what do we do when we're in the in-between? I mean very practically, what do we do? What are the things that we should practice? What are the things that help us when we're in the in-between? When you're in the valley, it's been called the the dry times, the desert, whatever word you want to use for it. What do we do to build faith, to to hold on to faith in those times? Joe, do you have a hand up? Okay. Be still and know that he is God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the in-between is a lonely place already. Don't make it lonelier than it needs to be. We, at that point, to surround ourselves with followers of Christ. Yeah. 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 Praise the Lord. Christina? One more time without the mask. There we go. Yeah, so, um, do what you need to do to bring your mind to the clutter. Is there going to be physical clutter you need to get rid of? That, that maybe in the room you're in? Or uh, maybe it's, you need to focus and you yeah. Yeah, very practically, there's a decluttering. You know what? Like, uh, I mean, just if I go into my office and my office is super cluttered, guess what's happening in my head? My head is super cluttered, right? So sometimes what I need to do is clean up the office, clean up the house, whatever. Sometimes just get away. I'm just going to go up into the woods for a little while because it helps me think up there because it's, it's a refreshing place to me. A change of scenery can be a, a massive help to us. Some of these very practical things that can change things. Yeah. 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 Surrender. And, and it's so good. Repeated surrender. Because you'll find yourself a minute later, maybe if you're real good an hour later, or if you're like some super saint a day later, going, oh, wait, didn't I let this go? And I have to surrender it again. And just living in a state of constant surrender is going to be huge. What else? Yeah. That was keep in front of you the faithfulness and the promises of God. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and in the Old Testament, God commanded Israel to erect a pile of stones in the middle of Jordan right. as a reminder for right. God's faithfulness. But he also said so that whenever your sons ask, what's that pile of rocks for? Right. You can then relay to your, your child uh, about what God did. And so, you know, particularly when, when it's the in-between, but it's, it's doubts or worries or something yeah. like that, just keeping keep in mind those definite times where there was something, a marker to look back on and right. say, I don't have to worry now because this is what, it, it may be a totally different situation, but this is how God was faithful then. Yeah. I just have to wait for that next opportunity to have a stone to remind me about how God is going to be faithful in the future with this one so that I will look back on it yeah. someday as another reminder of God's faithfulness. When you look at the disciples, guess what they never doubted again? Can God raise the dead? Like, and if he can physically actually raise the dead, they began to look at all their problems and go, why couldn't he tackle this? Yeah, we're in prison and this is hard. But he raised the dead. I think we're going to be okay. He is still in control. Even when he was dead, he was still in control. What does this circumstance in life have that it can throw at me? They had seen God move. And read through the New Testament. All the New Testament really is, is reminding them, hey, don't worry, he can overcome the dead. Your problems are nothing to him. And there's just kind of a practical, here's how to live it out. But that's what they're doing is they just keep pointing back. We're going to read some passages here in a little bit that go, Christ rose from the dead. What do we have to worry about? Looking back at the times that God has already been faithful builds our faith in the times when the doubt comes. Brian? Yeah, and I, and I think there's something that what you said about the in-between, again, the valley, the desert, the dry time, whatever language you use for it, it doesn't happen on accident. It's not like God dropped the ball and, oh, no, we got to figure it out until he picks it back up again. It's a part of his plan. We love the mountaintops, right? 
We love if you were ever a kid and you went to camp and you come back and there's that high, you're like, I am on fire for Jesus. I'm telling everybody. You're like, you can't not do those things. We love those times. How much growth actually happens when we're up on the mountaintop? Very little. We enjoy those times and those times are easy, but how much is our faith tested in those times? The only way your faith grows is if it's tested. And when you're on the mountaintop, there's no testing. There's no growth that happens there. Praise the Lord for those mountaintop times when it's just easy to follow Jesus. It almost doesn't even feel like a choice. It just comes naturally. Those are good times, but you don't grow in those times. We think of James in chapter one where he says, consider it joy when you're on the mountaintop. No, when you face trials of many kind. Because you know that God is using those to produce in you endurance and perseverance and godly character and hope in the trials, not during the easy times. The in-between is a part of God's plan and actually it's one of the most valuable pieces to his plan. As much as we don't want to hear that. Was somebody else going to say something over here before? Go for it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Jesus uses that term uh, or that, that picture of unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, nothing new can grow up from it. And how many in here are farmers? Me neither. But I understand a little bit about you plant a seed, something grows, and how long does that thing stay alive? A couple months, maybe, right? And it bears some fruit and it's good. And then what always happens? It dies. And you plant a seed. And then it grows, and it bears fruit, and then it dies. And there's this cycle that God has set up and made it so incredibly clear. Right now, the leaves are falling, and it is gorgeous outside. Pretty soon, all of the trees will be barren. The seeds have fallen, they die, and new growth comes. There's this cycle to it that God has set up, and he's made it so clear for us. But for some reason, when we find ourselves in the in-between, we go, oh, no, I can't believe this is happening to me. Why would God do this to me? Why would... And the doubts start to come. A couple things that I had thought of, and, and some of them you guys have already mentioned. When we're in between, when we're in the in-between, excuse me, focus on the character of God. Pray. Read your Bibles. Get those standing stones that you go, wait, he's done it here, and he's done it here, and he's done it here. In my life, he's done it here in Peter's life, and he did it here in Paul's life, and he... These are things that, to help you focus on the character of God. He is a good father and he can be trusted. I know that that's true even if I don't see how right now. How do I regularly, daily, multiple times daily set things up so that I can focus on the character of God? He has always been good. And David said something earlier when he's at the microphone and going, maybe he sends you where you want to go because he loves you. Maybe he doesn't send you where you want to go because he loves you. He is a good, loving father. Even if I can't see how, I trust that. And I need to continually remind myself of that. And here's a little rule of thumb that may help you. When it's hardest to read your Bible and to pray is when you need it the most. 
When it's easy to read your Bible, man, enjoy it. Those are, those are sweet times. I don't want to say you don't need it then because we always need it. But those aren't the times where you're putting it to use. Those are refueling times and those are good. But man, when you're in the in-between, when you're questioning, can he really be trusted? That's when you need reminded of it the most. That's when we need to, that stillness, sitting and, and knowing that he is God and in prayer. It will be the hardest thing you've done that day and it will be the most needed thing that you do that day. Just very practically, worship. Find ways to worship, especially when you don't feel like it. Sing praises to the Lord and, and worship together, alone, in your car. I don't care what it looks like. Be intentional to worship. There is something about worship. And, and specifically in this, I'm talking about singing praises to the Lord. You can worship in a bunch of different ways, but that's specifically what I'm talking about here. There is something about lifting our voices, singing the truths of God, even when we don't feel like it, that brings our hearts into alignment with him. There's something about singing it that goes, oh, that's right, it is true. He can be trusted. Think about how many times, maybe it's happened to you, but you hear it all the time. People are like, yeah, I was really struggling. And then this song came on the radio. And I don't put a whole lot into that. I don't think that's like, some people think the major way that God speaks is through K-Love. I don't agree with that. But what they're saying is this song helped me connect with the truth of God in a way that I really needed at the time. Let's be intentional. When you're in those times, focus on worship. Singing he is good, even if I don't feel like it, because I know that it's true. And the third one is this, bring others in on the fight. It's been mentioned here, do not go it alone. You will lose. The first thing they teach people in the military is divide and conquer. Ecclesiastes 4.12, we know this passage. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. If all you're doing is just giving it the best you got all on your own, you're not going to last long. But if you have trusted brothers or sisters that are going to come along and go, hey, 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 I hear what you're saying, but remember, that's not the truth. The truth is he can raise the dead. He can handle this. We need people to pray for us, to pray with us, to sing with us, to remind us of the truths of Scripture, to go, hey, hey, remember last year when you felt like this? And look at what he did. We need brothers and sisters to come alongside with us. That, that's what this whole thing is about, the church coming together and being the church. Because when you're weak, God has called me to be strong for you. And when I'm weak, God has called you to be strong for me. We cannot do it without each other. So let me, we're going to close. I'm going to read this passage out of Ephesians where Paul is basically just praying over the church. But I want for you, uh, I've kind of highlighted some things in yellow through here that just jumped out to me of these incredible promises that God makes. Not because he was talking to the church in Ephesus and going, hey, it's all really easy, right? They were struggling. They were going through some stuff. And he was writing them to, to help them along. But look at how he starts his letter. Look at the things that he reminds them of. And I think says, hey, keep these in front of you. And this makes all the difference. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, I keep asking that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. His power that works in us, and that's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Still working, still moving. And when do we need reminded of these promises? Not on the good days. In the in-between, we need to continue to repeat back to ourselves, every spiritual blessing has been poured out on me. I've been chosen. I've been made holy and blameless. He has poured out his grace on me. He's lavished it on my life. His power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in me today, even in the in-between. This is where I'm going to find the strength to keep going until the day that I see his promise fulfilled. And I will, I guarantee it. In this life or the next, I will see every single one of his promises fulfilled. I just need to keep going in the in-between. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I can stand up here and teach it. I can agree even as Brian was sharing, that this is a, a good and healthy part of God's plan. And, and we can talk about how this is where the growth really happens. But God, the moment I get into the in-between, it hurts and I don't want to be there anymore. And I will find a shortcut and I will try to get out of it and I will distract myself and I will run away from it or whatever I need to do. Lord, would you give us the strength, the courage of will to remain in the in-between? to bring the questions we have to you. You're not scared of them. Lord, to intentionally look to your goodness and remind ourselves of your character and your promises, to sing your praises, especially on the days when I don't feel like it, to surround myself with brothers and sisters who will encourage me forward, who will at times take me by the arm and pull me along until the day that I see your promise fulfilled. Every promise, Paul said in you, is yes and amen. May we always look forward to the days that you will fulfill your promise. Not maybe, but will. And remain faithful in the in-between, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.